I am Simone Cipriani and I am an officer of the United Nations. And I'm Claire Press and I'm a sustainable fashion journalist. You are listening to the Ethical Fashion Podcast. We can change the world. Now this series, we're focused on Africa. We're going to be bringing you stories from the continent and the diaspora, from designers, artists and creatives to big voices from business and the environment. So are you ready, Simone? I see you have your new microphone, your new setup, and you're very professional. <laughs> I am very professional with a huge mic. I'm ready. I'm absolutely ready. And But also, also, I wanted to say something about why Africa for this series. The EFI, you know, has been helping to bring African fashion designers to the world stage for a long time now, since 2013. We had started our work of the EFI with African artisans in 2008 in Korokocho, Islam of Nairobi. So this work with the African designers is the second stage of our growth. And on top of that, this is also a time when African fashion is capturing the imagination of the whole world and in a new way, while at the same time, and this is very important, talking to their own markets. And I think this is very interesting and very beautiful to focus on African fashion leading the conversation. So, andiamo, let's go, let's begin. This episode features two of the brilliant designers from the Ethical Fashion Initiative Accelerator program. Now, if you like it, we recommend that you go back and listen to episode four from season one, which features one of the program's mentors, Decore Egberson. And we'll share a link in the description. The Accelerator exists to support designers that produce in Africa to become investment ready and to boost their presence in the global market. Now we are excited because the designers from the program are launching on the PT Maginawomo Connect platform. Okay, Simone, for listeners who are not Italian or not in fashion, what is Pitti Uomo? Pitti, Pitti, Pitti is a very prestigious biannual fashion gathering in Florence, Italy, where everybody comes to see the trade show, but also the hot labels and the big names. Okay, so for our first interview, we're joined from Nairobi, Kenya, by Jennifer Muli, CEO of accessories brand Giamini. For our next interview, we have Lucanium Dinghi, who joins us from Cape Town. Giamini is a Kenyan brand. It's known for its jewellery, in particular extravagant beaded neck pieces and bracelets, but also bags. They use age-old traditions that have been passed down the generations and are brought to life by skilled female artisans. We talk about empowering women through ethical employment and the beauty of using heritage fashion techniques to do so. Hello, Jennifer Abariza Subui. Good morning to you. Hello and salama sana. I'm happy to join you. Jennifer, let's start with the name of your brand. Jamini is a Swahili word which means believe in self. It's about empowerment. Tell us what it means for you and for your work. I am a founder of a brand, Giamini, that is based in Nairobi. Uh, it's been running for the last four years. I'm the designer with assistance of other designers within the organization. And um, we make accessories. So my brand name is Giamini. And basically, Giamini is a Swahili word that means believe in yourself. And it, it goes a long way. It resonates a lot with me 
because uh, from my background, I am a single mother. I lost my husband when I was 26 years old. So it took a lot of people to push me to where I am and, uh, and to be able to bring up my children and, and put things together. You feel disgruntled. You feel like you're from your poverty reading. You kind of lose your self-esteem. So my brand was to put that confidence in women. It comes from that, but I would also say it comes from other women who surround you. I decided I want to work with women from the informal settlements, and I want to work with women in the village. And I want them to believe in themselves the same way somebody made me believe in myself. Jennifer, I have a question for you. It's about combining tradition with modernity. You have this lovely balance of really traditional techniques, but very modern chic pieces. Could you tell us about that? And could you describe some of the pieces? Some of our pieces are influenced by culture, but then we transform to suit the global woman, just to make her feel that elegant and and confident. It brings a lot of confidence wearing our pieces for the elegant woman and just to transform them and make them beadwork in terms of the neck pieces. And we also do them bold and to be, you know, to make you feel like you walk in a room and everybody will turn their eyes and look at you. So basically that's what our purpose is, to make you feel confident as you wear them because it's made by a woman who believes in herself. We make both traditional baskets, which uh, we've hand-woven. They're woven by women and we use sisal and wool to combine the two. And then we also now work with women from the informal settlement in Nairobi. To be more precise, my women are from the Kibera uh, slum. So we teach the women from Kibera to do the beadwork. The beadwork is inspired by the Maasai community. But we are looking at if we have to empower women from generally everywhere, every sector, every location of Kenya, you look at what they're good at and what their culture carries. So I am from the Kamba community and we do a lot of woven baskets, but we wanted to make them more modified, more driven by the modern woman, still keeping with our culture of and our techniques of weaving. And that's how we came to do the, the combination. So I work with women from the grassroots in Lukambani to do the basket weavery. We teach them different techniques because you can borrow techniques from anywhere. We try and borrow techniques that are used from, I would say, Bangladesh, which is using crocheting. And, uh, and then we also use our own hand woven and we come back and take the women from the informal settlement to do the beadwork on the straps. So you combine two expertise from different women just to show you how you can bring women together to be anything they want to be. We have so much in common, Jennifer. We have so much even on, on beadwork. We started with beadwork at the EFI. I remember doing this with Mazai groups and, you know, Mazai track. And so at the very beginning, with to follow production, we had to track, literally, and to walk with them across the Rift Valley. And, and I remember also working where we still work in, in Kibera, exactly, exactly like you. Oh, I love this conversation. It brings me back to the early days of the ethical fashion. And uh, it brings me back to a huge desire to be in Umbani, to be at home in Kenya, to be around in, in, we started the ethical fashion in Korokocho, you know, and I used to spend a lot of time in Korokocho and sometimes I used to go there to sleep in a shack where some missionaries used to live. And, uh, and our collaborator in Geneva, Vincent Odur, he comes from Korokocho. So we are very, then we passed to Kiber and then we started in the Rift Valley with the Masai and then we, we went to Laikipia and then to the south towards the Mara. 
Ah, it's, it brings me back all those memories, really, Jennifer. It's a dream. That's touching. That's amazing. I can tell you, for me, none of our women are massaged. All our women are, are different tribes. We have Luyas and we have Kambas as well. Although the Kamba has a culture in beadwork, they never quite sustained it. That's what I'm trying to bring back also, to be able to go back to our culture. Why did you choose to focus on beadwork, exactly on beadwork? You know, it's interesting you ask, uh, because the amazing thing is I did not start with beadwork. I was employed. I worked for the U.S. government, USAID. But my son, who was, um, I would say, 14 years then, is the one who started with the beadwork. And his thinking was, my eldest daughter was going to the university in the U.S. And my son sat and thought, it's very expensive. How will my mom balance all this, you know, paying school fees as well as feeding us? And you imagine some, uh, that kids don't think like that at that age. So he said he wanted to do a neck piece for his sisters to sell for the prom and accumulate money to help me pay, for instance, uh, electricity and water. So beadwork was initiated by my, my son. And the whole concept of what I really am today was built by my son. So he started that with a beading. He did one, two pieces of necklaces and showed us while my daughters and I were busy watching a movie. And we're all like, like mesmerized, like, oh, wow, that's beautiful. And so we all stopped what we were doing to go and look at his pieces. And my daughter said, make more of those. I'll sell to my friends at school and then you can make some money. So it started like a hobby. And here we are today. <laughs> There's also this very serious kind of capacity for building economic empowerment through this beadwork. We are both passionate about the empowerment of women. And uh, it's, it's the DNA of the EFI. We started exactly like that. And we are also passionate about the capabilities of women entrepreneurs and women artisans. What have you learned about women capacities for creative entrepreneurship through Jamini, through your own experience? One thing I've learned about uh, women entrepreneurship and capacity and what they can do is working with them through Giamini, they are able to also move and grow and start their own kind of businesses as well. And I'll tell you a good example is the women at the village. They're so willing to learn the techniques you teach them. And it's inspiring. It touches me when I see them coming up with new designs and they're willing to show you what they've created, not necessarily because you've driven them to do it, but because they have that interest to get to another level of their, their cultural uh, or traditional way of doing things. So it inspires me as a woman to see that I can change a woman's thoughts to think out of that closet of thinking this is what she is and get out of that shell and become something that is just amazing in herself. And they feel very good knowing that they can do anything. They just need to teach themselves, like they think out of the box generally, to be able to come up with some of the designs that I would say I don't influence. They influence the designs sometimes. And that's, I mean, it's amazing. I remember the first time we set up a small hub in Nairobi, there, is, there was a lot of beadwork and other things, crocheting, as you have said, and, and embroidery. And I remember women coming to our hubs and asking in Swahili, Iko kazi apa, which means, as you know, is there work here? And our answer was always Iko, Iko, yes, there is. And all these women came in and slowly they organized themselves in groups and slowly they organized themselves in cooperatives. It was an autonomous process. It was incredible, just like what you said. 
incredible capacities, entrepreneurial capacities. The cooperatives are one thing that works perfectly in this country and in the communities. If you want to bring women together, put them as a cooperative and it works perfectly. That's one thing we have discovered. I'd like to ask you a little bit about the challenges of working the way that you work, working with cooperatives, working with women that are being upskilled, women in different communities. What makes it hard? We've talked about what makes it valuable and worthwhile, but what makes it difficult? Some of the things that make it very difficult to work with women, especially the women in the village, because the women in the informal settlement is their livelihood. It's a job. We give them employment. We actually employ them uh, on a full-time basis. They're on a salary. We pay them well. But you find when they want to work, they work knowing their children are going to school. They can have afford medical facilities. We pay their NHIF and all that for the, the informal settlement women in Nairobi. But the women in the village, the biggest challenge is when it is a rainy season and they need to harvest or cultivate their land, they are not able to balance. So you find if you have an order, it becomes very tricky to fulfill that order if that woman is going to till her farm. And uh, even if she has to do the work in the evening, it doesn't fill up an order or you cannot guarantee an order. One thing we tried to take care of that was to pay them well for their baskets. And you find when we pay them well, they are able to actually pay somebody to do their, to cultivate for them if you have an order for them to weave. And we found that as one of the best things we could do for these women. And they are so determined and they're very focused to deliver. And I remember that in, in the old days, in 2008, 2009, all these informal entrepreneurs, women entrepreneurs, were already using telephones, phones to transfer money through PESA, the system, no? And I, I remember being astonished to find this kind of possibility in the informal sector. We used to pay people with big blocks of banknotes, and suddenly somebody said, hey, you can transfer money by phone. And we switched in 2008, 2009, all the payments on the phone network. It was incredible. And these informal entrepreneurs, even at the level of the village, used to, to use it in a, in a very simple way. I want to tell a story about the Masai and the village. The story is the following. We had to, one of the groups, of the Masai groups we used to work with, also coordinated the work of other Masai groups. So the leader there, a, a very strong woman, told me, hey, when you come for the payments and all the rest, it's don't only bring money, but carry some flour, some flour, a bucket of flour. So I bought a 25-kilo thing of flour, and then I went, and I had forgotten that the Masai track. The new settlement was on the, on the Ngong Hills on top of a very steep hill, and I had to walk up to there with these 25 kilos on the back. There was a small hole in the sack, and a lot as part of this flower got down in my back <laughs> and under the shirt where it mixed with, with sweat, and it became a sort of concrete jacket on my body. And when I arrived up there, the lady said, Hey, what have you done? Are you mad? <laughs> it was a hilarious moment. I'm glad I asked about challenges. <laughs> that was a challenge. That was a real challenge, yeah. That was a challenge. I'm lost for words, but I'm not lost for words. I want to come back to Giamini, Jennifer, and I want to ask you to perhaps close by telling us a little bit more about what your hopes for the business are. Perhaps you might touch on the work that you've done with the EFI Accelerator Program. And we talked about challenges, but where do you see this headed? And what would you like listeners to know about what's there for the future? 
I mean, there's so much for Giamini. And uh, under the EFI program, it's just amazing. It's out of this world, I must say, because what the input they bring into the design component and how to run the business has really um, helped us in the sense of we feel more confident even as we work with the women because what we learn from EFI, we transfer it to the women as well because you need to grow together. And that is, becomes very helpful. The women groups we work with under the cooperative all have a structure where they have the chairperson. So we try not to micromanage them. We try to make them feel responsible and feel, you know, that confidence in themselves, the Giamini in itself. So they work together and we deal directly with the chairperson and the treasurer deals with the finances. So we've helped them through the same help we get from EFI. It trickles down to the grassroots where the women also have to keep their kind of books. And it also helps them in terms of managing their, their funds and understanding whether they're making a profit and whether they are growing. And where do I see this business going? It's going places. After this is just the tip of the iceberg, if you ask me, because now we've grown more confident as Giamini in believing in ourselves even more at a higher level based on all the detail, all the information and assistance we've uh, received from EFI. I am 90% more confident of who my business is, who Giamini is, because I still have to keep believing in myself and in what I do. It's a reminder to me to keep working harder. And EFI has come in right at the right time where my confidence has blown up. It's I seriously walk with confidence. You can see me anywhere and I've changed who I am and I've changed my attitude towards my business. Even when I meet with the women, they can tell I'm speaking differently now because I feel there's hope. There's hope when you work together. When you put women together, you can get anything you want. You can you can be anybody and anything because women are so resilient in what they put their hearts to. And you see it with these women at the grassroots who they're more confident. They're more, they feel appreciated for the work they do. It's not just doing a bag. It's knowing that that bag is sold to somebody who feels just as confident as you do knowing you've accomplished that. So it's just an amazing situation. And I think women will change the world with just the little they do, but doing it together, we make a big difference. Wow. Thank you, Jennifer. That was so beautiful. You speak beautifully. I love it. Jennifer, you are incredible. You are incredible. You have to become a testimonial of the EFI much beyond the accelerator. You embody all what we believe in. To town, Anna, in Nairobi, Jennifer. Nairobi, Ninyumbani, kwa EFI. We'll see each other in Nairobi, Jennifer. Nairobi's home for the EFI. Now we're going to hear from Lukanyo Madingi, a South African fashion designer based in Cape Town, who's been getting a lot of attention globally for his sophisticated collections, both men's and women's wear. He's big on textiles he produces locally, and he has a luxury aesthetic. In this conversation, we talk about how an independent brand can take on the international market, the slow fashion approach, and the opportunities for reshoring garment production in South Africa. Welcome, Lucanio. How are you? Are you happy about PT? Oh, Simona, um, I'm good. It's so lovely to connect again. I am extremely excited about Pitu Umo. I think the label has done all that it can do. And also just working with EFI, I think what will unfold from this are what will be amazing opportunities. So we're extremely excited. Tell our listeners where you are from. 
I'm originally from a small coastal town in the Eastern Cape called East London. But um, for the last 10 years now, I've been based here in Cape Town. And the Lukanyum Dingy label is also based here in Cape Town. Tell us about your label then. Tell us about your brand. What does it mean for you and, uh, and for the customers? Who do you design for? Oh, man, where do I even start? Who do we design for? Um, well, I'd have to say, Consider Design becomes the promise that we are yielded by. So by working with artisans and collaborators that mirror our principles has become the sole vehicle in creating investment pieces that last far beyond a single season. We originally started off as a menswear label, and then over time we just noticed that our customers and our clientele ended up being a strong presence of women buyers than men buyers. And um, so we started introducing women's wear within our collections. And um, ideally, we create men's and women's wear, but essentially, I think we are creating pieces that are for anyone and everyone. And whoever feels attracted to the label is more than welcome to take a seat at, a, at the table with us. It's interesting how many menswear designers are now being taken up by women and it doesn't really matter who buys your clothes as long as they get the feeling and they understand what it's all about, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, sometimes it's adding or putting labels onto things actually impose a certain kind of pressures that society impose upon us. And that's something that we try to sway away from as much as we can. We just had to create a beautiful collection and beautiful pieces and um, whoever feels as though that they want to invest in it and, and buy our pieces and feel part of our story, that's something that's really amazing and that we appreciate. Beautiful. Hey, Lucanio, I'd like you to talk about timelessness, collections designed to last, but also the idea of time as luxury. Can you talk us through that? Um, yeah, sure, of course. That's correct. Our intention is to ensure a mindful approach. So essentially, we're looking into creating design that is honest, that is steady, and that is strong. And the meaning of luxury to us, in essence, is using time and consideration and love and human hands. It's interesting that you talk about time and taking your time as luxurious. And I mean, in listeners to this podcast, I feel are all pretty switched on to the idea of slow fashion. And you're talking about that tempo of taking time and making things that don't, I guess, become obsolete, right? But what, what else does it mean to you? Is it, is it also about the sustainability? Of course, I think there's like, there's such a connection to all of this. Taking time, I believe, means having a more considered approach to how you work and also paying more attention to those that you're working with. So by really being steady with yourself and also being mindful of those that you're working with, you're able to really see the steps of how to get from point A to point B. And um, that is something that's really important. So I think there's a connection through time, slow fashion and sustainability for sure. Most people, when they talk about slow fashion, talk about the customer and talk about, I guess, designing out waste and keeping a garment in use for longer. But you're actually looking at it also from a design perspective. This is the thing. What we're trying to create here is collaborating with those that are also fellow designers, not necessarily always designers in terms of clothes, but also those that are pattern makers and those that are textile developers. They too are designers. And if we share the same spirit of trying to have a more mindful approach in development of things, that becomes the essence. By taking our time and working as systematically as possible and really paying attention to what we do in each step, that's really important to us in the label. 
This series of the podcast is about African fashion, African business, African creativity. You said you are from Cape Town. Tell us about your setup there, but also tell us about the African fashion industry. How has it changed since when you, you started in 2015? What's going on in it? What people don't really know is that 20, 25 years ago, Cape Town was a huge hub of manufacturing and there was a huge history with garment technology and garment production. So by having those that were part of that generation of people that worked in the industry, there's still such a strong heritage that's within textile development and also garment making. And what the label has done is really tapped into key people that were part of that industry that also have the experience of what they'd learned during those years. That is why being in Cape Town has been to our advantage. Has the industry declined? Has manufacturing moved offshore as it has in so many other places? Is that is it about trying to bring back business? That's exactly true. There was a huge decline after importing and exporting exchange of China happened. So a lot of people were left without jobs and a lot of factories ended up being closing down. But the thing is, what wasn't taken away was their experience and what they knew. So by working with key pattern makers or sample hands that were part of that generation, it has helped us to have a stronger sense of product development and production. So as an emerging designer, I know you've been in business for five years, but as a, as a new voice, is this about for you also feeling a responsibility or the possibility of bringing back this flourishing industry in your town? I mean, is that, is that something that you think? You said it so sweetly about possibility and responsibility. I think there's definitely a hybrid between the two. And I think if you're in a space of entrepreneurship and also design, there's so much room and potential for you to really penetrate your industry in a way of uplifting it. And I think that what our label has done is slowly and steadily be part of this generation where we're able to have a business and really practice the spirit of entrepreneurship and see how we can uplift in one way or another our industry that has declined. And you have behind this, behind this uplifting work of, of the old industry into a new shape, you also have a continent now which is more aware of its own capabilities in terms of production of fabric, of artisanal work. So networks are being created as, as a global African fashion industry with a lot of possibilities. And I think this uplifting of the old industry is also about creating new hubs. I absolutely agree with you. The thing is, Africa is a huge continent and there's so many different diverse cultures that coexist within it. Not only cultures, but also artisanal crafts that haven't even really been seen or tapped into yet. And I think if we collaborate and also create networks within those spaces, we're able to really create this beautiful hybrid of artisanal craft together with modern design. I think there's this huge misconception that um, African design has to be extremely colorful and very print driven. And even though I understand why that's also the case, because we, there is such a vibrancy within our continent and there's so much diversity, but there also are things that are far beyond bright prints and um, traditional prints. So what our label has done is really focus on textile development. And for example, through working closely with textile designer Stephanie Bentham, explored how luxury yarns such as merino wool and pure kid mohair can create a solid textile through the felting technique. 
Faulting is an ancient technique in fabric creation. It has no loom or interlocking whatsoever. So initially, it's a sense of having your hands and being intimate with the whole method of creating a fabric through the use of water, soap, and the human hands. But what this has also led to is through the use of kid mohair, which spans a 200-year history of Ngoro goat farming and tradition within South Africa. We are in a place where we have reared and prized top-tier genetic mohair fibers offering optimum hairs and spinning with a traceable value chain from farming and spinning and processing. This has really allowed us to really understand that there's a whole thread of this far beyond textile development itself, but really understanding that it's now become byproducts of other industries as well. And there is an incredible heritage in in the continent, an incredible textile heritage indeed. It's still very connected to the origin of materials, so it allows traceability, but also it allows to have products that are substantially climate neutral because there is a lot of manual transformation. And then there is also a, a wide use of renewables. Uh, there is a lot of solar panels around and all the rest. So there is a potential in this textile industry of Africa to have a climate-neutral production. You've also got the supply chain being potentially shorter because you're using materials that are local or at least regional, and then you're making locally. So even if you're exporting a global luxury product when it comes to retail, you're actually shortening your supply chain quite considerably in this story, right? Well, that is true. And like I said earlier on, our approach is to be really steady with this. So we're literally going from zero to one to two as opposed to zero to a hundred. And um, by developing these textiles and also cutting away all these other chains that of importing and exporting and, and trying to bring new things in, by really focusing on harnessing, it's a gradual process. And there's a lot of research that goes into this and development. Lucanio, I'd love to know how you got interested in fashion. Uh, maybe you can go back to the start. Uh, you said you grew up in a small town on the East Coast. Is that right? I'm guessing fashion there wasn't a big thing, or am I wrong? How did you discover fashion? Uh, Samara, that is, that's actually quite a funny story. It started by being at the tenor age of four or five, and there was this soapy series called um, The Bold and the Beautiful, which aired here in South Africa for like many, many years. And um, that soapy is all about like this fashion family. And I think that definitely started my love for, for fashion because it was, it was through that medium where I first got to see a little bit of, of fashion, which led to obviously seeing like the 90s fashion and the likes of Gianni Versace and um, Christy Turlington and Naomi Campbell and just being immersed in the 90s, even as such a young kid, I was so aware of of what it meant and and what it was. And um, I was just really attracted to that power of, of fashion. Super, super glamorous, but like, but also fun and like really beautiful. There was definitely a sensibility to it that was just so fun and design orientated, which I really admired. But it's also like this sort of window into another world. I love that. I think fashion can be that for many people that whether it's through the pages of a magazine or through a film or through the TV, there's a a kind of escapism to it. 100%. And that's what it was for me, actually. And for probably so many other young people looking at, young Lacanios looking at like Vogue's and Cosmopolitan's and watching runway shows and fashion TV. 
perhaps we might end by talking about where your career has taken you because you've you've been making a splash. I mean, you made your New York Fashion Week debut, was it 2019? You're obviously about to take on Pitti. Tell us a little bit about that trajectory and then perhaps we might finish up by talking about the accelerator. Yeah, that's such an interesting question because I, I truthfully believe that uh, each and every human individual that you meet throughout your career, they mean something and they totally matter. And, it, and these opportunities lead to other opportunities. So um, being part of um, the New York Fashion Week actually ended up leading us to the accelerator because the people that we had been liaising with, with the CFDA, a few months later, they had sent us a news clipping about the EFI accelerator. And I honestly think if it hadn't been for them, we wouldn't have seen it. What it's definitely done is heightened the importance of making the marriage between business and design work. And that is something that is so important because a lot of the time, if you are the designer, but you're also the the one that's solely running the business, you either focus too much on the design or you either focus too much on the business. There really has to be some sort of common ground where you have to focus on both equally and the best that you can. And what EFI has done so seamlessly has really helped us with networks and also key individuals that are, I would like to think have been our I would say, leaders of some sort, look with Susie and Ossian, they've really assisted us to getting to the next stage of preparing ourselves for a more global market, especially if that's a space that you want to be positioned in. So um, that's what the accelerator has done. And I also truthfully believe that a lot more is going to unfold from this. And that's something that we are incredibly excited about. We are all excited about that. This accelerator is a whole journey into African fashion and in a complete new way. It will be the beginning of a new area, completely new area of work with the EFI. It feels like right now there's so much excitement about emerging African designers across the continent, whether it's from Nigeria, whether it's from Kenya, whether it's from South Africa. There's a lot of eyes at the moment on African creativity. And what about the African market, Lucanio? It's a huge market. It's a growing market. You have more and more fashion boutiques and outlets and retail places, and you have a direct connection in between consumers of fashion and, and designers. What about that? Well, the same way that I believe our industry is growing within the designers is exactly the same within our retailers and the market itself in terms of buying power. People are wanting to invest more in those that are creating from their countries or should I say the whole continent in itself. So even as an African designer, I'm more curious about those that are also African designers and wanting to invest more to those designers. There's so much richness within our culture, our artisanal craft, and also importantly, our narratives that, that can be shared. And I think what we've done as African designers is really create a beautiful story and narrative by introducing historical ways of making textiles or through beadwork or one way or another. I think we've really modernized it and really brought that essence within our storytelling. So that's a really fresh thing in the global market and in the global sense. And I think people are able to to see that and they, they're really curious about it and they really want to feel part of it because it really is such a special story. I think people are wanting that. And I, and I feel like Africans are wanting to support fellow Africans. And by having an attitude like that has already enabled us to grow in the most organic way possible. And I think that's what has been unfolding these last number of years. 
Great, great, great. Lucanio, see you for, for all our businesses together in the accelerator. You take care. You too. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening, my friends. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us online at ethicalfashioninitiative.org and we are on Instagram at ethicalfashion. And don't forget to share the episode with your friends and with colleagues and with anyone you think would benefit from it. We love it when you tell other people. I'm going to say that again. Can you help spread the word and share our story with your friends on social media? Our mission is to work towards sustainable development and create long-term impact in the communities where we operate. Through extensive training and mentorship, we build capacity and enable artisans to produce for the international market. Through this program, workers are empowered and can lift themselves out of poverty. Not charity, just work. Mm-hmm.